This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Alcesser. And this year we're exploring the book of Acts in the New Testament and where the book of Acts digresses. We are veering off of that to look at some of the people and places and topics that are addressed in there. Last week we took a look at the book of 1 Peter. and Today, Ben, we're going to jump into 2 Peter. It's the second letter that Peter wrote. It was after First Peter. Did you know that? That's how that worked. And uh, so it's a little later in life. And I think most people believe that the persecution that was surrounding the, the readers was getting notched up. And some of the, the things that we've learned about through history and studying some of these emperors who didn't like Christianity, they were making it worse. So there, there were some big challenges happening there. And, and I'm guessing there was a temptation for people to soften their stance on Christianity because it was so dangerous. So Peter, in writing the second letter, is writing a lot about truth. And we're going to talk today about truth as he's laying it out for us in this book. Now, let, me just, let me just start, Ben, by asking you about truth. You've, you've talked a bit of, in this podcast over the last year plus about you coming to a knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, but when you were younger, you did not embrace that as as truth. I'm I'm interested in the progression in in your life of leaning into the the Bible as truth, into Christ as truth, into the the gospel as truth. And as as you leaned into that, was that a was that like a cliff? that you jumped off of all, all in, or was it a slow ramp or how, how did that work in your life coming to it? Cause, cause now I don't know anybody anywhere who is more confident that the gospel, the Bible is truth than you. Um, so help me figure out how, how you got from there to here. Uh, need to expand your, your friend base. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, for me, as I've shared before, and, and not not to dismiss, to diminish the the work of the Spirit, also in in nurturing, uh, and and bringing me and drawing me uh, to faith and to relationship with Christ, and so not not to in any way diminish the work of the Spirit in helping and, and guiding understanding. But I, you know, for me, the the clincher in my relationship for Jesus, which led me to to really I think take firm hold of Christ was that I couldn't with any kind of intellectual uh honesty dis- be dismissive of the physical resurrection of Christ the the evidence the historical evidence uh in in every way shape and form points to it and not being able to be dismissive of that I think in essence giving myself over uh to the word seeing it as objective truth Part of that was conditioned undoubtedly by the environment uh, in which I accepted Christ in. I went to a a church that strongly affirmed uh, the objective truth uh, of Scripture, not in any ways uh, diminishing uh, the different genres that are present uh, within Scripture. We do need to read it within that context, so not diminishing that at all, but recognizing that Scripture is objective truth, being in that in in that church context. Uh, and then as I studied, as I studied the word, 
one of the things that is just undeniable is how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together as a whole. So the more I've studied scripture over the years, the more I've come to see how it, A, I think God's divine hand upon it, you know, looking at these writers over thousands of years and how every piece of it fits in this perfect, in my mind, theological puzzle where it's just this masterpiece. And, you know, to that end, um, scripture verifies itself. You, I mean, a lot of people I know, they, they grow up in the faith like I did and go to college, go to seminary, whatever, and seem to pull away a bit from what you would call, what you're calling objective truth or seeing the scripture as being the truth of God that's given to us. But your, your story is intriguing to me because it's a little different than that. I mean, you have a bachelor's degree, but then you went to seminary and you have a master's of divinity and you have a doctorate in, in ministry, and you've pressed into the intellectual side of all of this as well, yet this hasn't caused you to waver in your acceptance of the truth, has it? I mean, it's, it's no, interesting to me. No, and I, I think part of it, too, is, again, seeing Scripture to the whole. So understanding a, what I would call a biblical theology or wh- what we call a biblical theology, I think one of the problems— that some folks run into, not to not to characterize the whole or stereotype a particular uh, group of people, but one of the problems that sometimes people run into is that they practice what I would call textual isolation. And so what they do is that, they... That's a new one for me. <laughs> what is that? It might be new to the world. I don't know. Maybe I created that or I heard it somewhere and it's just been locked in my brain. But they, they practice textual isolation. And so what they end up doing is they encounter something in Scripture, usually dealing with some sort of moral ethic in Scripture that they disagree with. And so rather than looking at the biblical text as a whole from start to finish and how the pieces of the puzzle fit together, they take this one piece of Scripture and they try to find a way around it. And so their initial impulse is to say, I disagree with this and I'm skeptical of it. And so now I'm going to take this piece of Scripture, these few verses that I disagree with, and I'm going to find a means around them. And so rather than looking at the biblical evidence as a whole, they hyper-focus on a few verses, and then they try to find a means to discredit those few verses, not recognizing really how they're tearing away at the fabric of the biblical text as a whole. That makes sense? It does make sense. It's So... What would you call your approach? Wouldn't be isolation, because it's it's this unified view or something of of Genesis to Revelation, the whole biblical narrative, and and what it speaks to us and the truth that it conveys to us, and trusting that God who gave it to us is going to make sure it fits together. You talked about a minute ago pieces of a puzzle that fit together, so it's it's kind of woven together, I think and weave together so that we can understand the heart of God and, and what he's, he's trying to convey. Well, let's, let's take a look at some things that Peter said. And first of all, look in Second Peter. We're in Second Peter today, chapter 1, and I'm going to pick it up at verse 19 and call this little section the truth of Scripture. Second Peter 1, beginning in 19, and it says, We also have the prophetic message 
as something completely reliable, Peter believed it, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, this goes hand in hand with scriptures like 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The, the idea that that Scripture is spoke from God, is God-breathed, and that humans merely wrote it down, is different than, uh, some would say, that the Bible is just a collection of, of writings by 40 or so different authors who were part of their cultural context, part of their times, and it's bound by that those cultural contexts, and to be understood only in that light. They were, they were kind of spiritual people, religious people. This is a, a different take on it, and that is, no, this came from God, who is outside of culture, beyond culture, above culture, and the creator of culture. And that, that God is the one who speaks it. God is the one who breathes it into the people who wrote it down and hopefully into us who read it. Yeah, and that's, that's not to diminish the different temperaments or personalities of the writers. Um, and so what we have uh, in the whole of Scripture is that we have God's self-revelation, God's objective truth being delivered to us through these different writers who have different styles, uh, for instance. And so it's not, it's not meant to, to diminish the, the aspects of the writers themselves, but also recognizing that the, the writers are uh, conveying what Peter here calls God's absolute objective truth. So when Peter looks back at the Old Testament, he sees it as God's word. When Jesus, who quoted the Old Testament more than anyone, quotes the Old Testament, he's quoting it as the word of God. And one of the things that Peter does in this letter is he bridges between the Old Testament and the New Testament because at the end of Second Peter, uh, not to steal your thunder, but in chapter 3, he points to the Apostle Paul and he talks about Paul's writings and he calls them Scripture. And so he's wedding, in essence, what we see as the New Testament to the Old Testament and revealing uh, both pieces of, of what we see as the biblical text as Scripture, as God's Word, as Holy Spirit inspired. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. I, I just, I don't want to be simplistic on this, but if I don't, if I don't have the Bible as the authoritative Word of God in my life, I've got nothing. And as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a church leader, and all, all those things, that's, that's what I've got. I mean, it's not wit and wisdom. It's not jokes and stories. It's not good leadership skills and strategies. I mean, you know, those things are good, fine. But it's the Word of God that, that is the truth that for me, I say, if I have that to stand on, I'm, an, I'm on a firm foundation. If I don't have that, everything's crumbling around me. At least that's my sort of simplistic 
maybe approach no, the it, ministry. It's not simplistic. And <laughs> I mean, it's the height of arrogance to approach Scripture and approach it basically it, it, as a pastor, for instance, like in an adversarial way, where almost you're not approaching it as objective truth, but um, pr- approaching it either with a, a cynical or skeptical mindset. Um, it's the height of arrogance. That that's not humility. That's not yielding ourselves to God. And also, it diminishes the nature, the very nature of God, to approach Scripture through that lens. Because what you're saying is, the God who can raise Jesus from the dead couldn't get His word straight. Like the idea of, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you know, within the our modern world. You know, the, the big argument, and it's not that you don't read scripture in context, but then some folks apply contextualism to things based upon our own uh, cultural bents or understandings, and then try to rework the word of God to fit their culture. I mean, how arrogant is that to say, well, then, then at, that, at that point, your particular culture and your particular place is what ultimately reigns as sovereign, not God. This came home for me when I was in high school, and the scripture was coming alive to me at that point in my life, and and I was beginning to read the Bible more than I had and, and study a little bit. And at the same time, I was I was a big fan of novels. I still love to read novels, but there was one particular author that I would read, and I was fascinated by his work, and he dealt a lot with um, subjects that would didn't match up with the Bible, the occult and, and horror, um, all kinds of other things which would, would not mesh up with what I think Scripture would say is good and right and holy. And, and for me, I, I kind of was confronted by the Holy Spirit on that to say, what is my truth? What is, not my truth, I don't even like that phrase, what is truth? And is it, is it going to be the Word of God or this fascinating author who, who was capturing my mind? And I found myself when I'd be reading the novels, when I had my daydreaming time. You know, we had daydreaming time back before iPhones. Did you know that? So when I had daydreaming time, that, that I would be thinking about the novel, not about Scripture. I'd mm-hmm. be thinking about the, the scenes and the pictures and the, the fantasy world of th- this kind of writing as opposed to the Word of God itself. And I, I, the, the Lord dealt with me. I had to come face-to-face with that, like, which— Am I going to hold on both of these as an equal influencer in my life or, or not? And as God dealt with me, I said, I have to choose Scripture. That doesn't mean I don't still read some novels. I do. I read other, all kinds of works. Um, I just read an autobiography of somebody here recently, so I read all kinds of things that, that are available to me to read. But sometimes you just got to come down and say, I'm going to— Put my anchor down on the Word of God, and I think that's what Peter's getting at here. As people were probably very conflicted in this world of persecution and suffering that was all around them, to soften it a bit. In fact, he he talks about this in, in chapter two, beginning at verse one, and it seems there are some people who are trying to influence them to to abandon the truth and go and embrace falsehood, because he says in Second Peter two verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. 
they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Wow, that's a phrase, the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. This is a a punch right to the gut of false prophecy, false teaching, false ideas, false heresies that have not gone away in our day. They're, they're, not, they're not new, but they're not gone either because there seems to be a desire for, for some reason to, you might call it, water down the gospel or alter it or maybe weave it into other things, syncretism, to, to, to mesh it up with other kinds of teaching and say they're either all kind of the same thing. And what's the fascination with that for people that, that we often want to grab on to the, to the other pieces which sound more interesting or glamorous or, or presented in a, in a catchier way or whatever you might call that, rather than saying, no, you know, my, my desire is to stay firm with the truth of God regardless of how flashy this, this teacher of false doctrine is. What, what's, what's the deal for us as humans on that? Uh. I'm not 100% sure. I think I would, I guess I would posit that I think our pride uh, inevitably gets in the way. Um, you know, we, we want to be the master of our own domain. <laughs> and so to that end, the idea that we're going to yield ourselves fully uh, to God or to God's word uh, confronts, I think, the, the idolatrous bent of our hearts. As Jeremiah said, you know, the heart is deceptive above all things. And I think that's a piece of it. I think there's the other part of it where there's a tendency to want to, I I think from a pastoral standpoint, sometimes there's a tendency to want to play to the crowd. You see that in the Old Testament with a lot of the false prophets, Uh, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and the true prophets of God are going in and calling the people to repent. And the false prophets are basically running around saying, there's nothing to see here everything's good. Peace, peace, peace. You, you know, we and God are in great shape. Everything's fine. Um, and that's where their, their falsehood is, is derived from is a, in essence, they're trying to appease the King. They're trying to appease the people. Um, they want good standing. Whereas Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets of God, they are constantly constantly uh, enduring persecution, constantly enduring pushback. Nobody's listening to them. And I think within our, uh, within our day, a, a lot of the same uh, bent, I think, drives us. I think within the, the church itself, there's a, 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 from a standpoint of institutional preservation, uh, there's a sense of where uh, there's certain things biblically that are so culturally confrontational you know, why jump into that? Why potentially scare people off or scare people away uh, from the church or scare people out of the pews or whatever it might be? So where you're trying, some folks are trying to make things palatable uh, to culture as a whole because they see that as a means toward institutional preservation. Um, and I think that that's part of the driving factor, maybe. Maybe so. Peter doesn't have very kind words to say about 
us, any of us, when we when we water down or delete or 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 whatever the the truth of the word of God. In fact, he says this. In, I'm still in chapter two, Second Peter two, now verse seventeen. These people, he says, are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. That's a pretty good quote there. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. That that word there, slaves of depravity, is an interesting one. When I came out of seminary, or was coming out of seminary, and trying to get ordained, had to go before the Board of Ordained Ministry and write the theology papers that you have to do for those kind of things. I remember that I used the word depravity a handful of times in my theological treatise that I submitted to them. And uh, I guess it wasn't Wesleyan enough or Arminian enough or Methodist enough or something enough. And so um, I got hammered on the use the use of that word in, in my papers. Like, you know, what are you at? And are you sure you belong with us? And maybe you're uh, some other kind of brand of Christian, you know, whatever. And I, I my only response was, it's in the Bible, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, I was green. You know, I really didn't know much. I, I, I admittedly did not know much. I, and I just, I was so stunned that the triad, the three people who were quizzing me, were just fixated on my use of the word depravity. And I, and I couldn't understand that. And I don't know, the, the, those folks, if, if they were, if they were really saying we should not be using those kind of words or, if they were just trying to see, you know, test me, you know, and see what kind of metal I had there and see if they could trip me up. I don't know what was really going on, but it sticks in my mind from all these years ago that the language of us being slaves of depravity, of, of us being lost without the, the grace of God through Jesus Christ for some reason, that that word itself, or those that kind of language in general itself, it, it becomes argumentative almost in some Christian context. So I, I don't expect you to have a comment on that, unless uh, your uncle or something was on my triad that I don't know about, and then we and then we have some talk about. So I, I I don't I don't have really you know the comment. It's just to say this is a this is a real thing. Sometimes that we we don't want to talk to talk about the truth of God and the truth of Scripture and say, this is what the Bible says. And anyway, that's that's how my response was. It wasn't very intellectual, I don't think. I just said, uh, it's in the Bible. And <laughs> that alone, maybe they could see that I was just not smart enough to know uh, really how to defend myself, but they let me off the hook and ordained me anyway. Um, nonetheless, it goes on in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20, and it says, if they, again, talking about these, these folks who are spreading the, this false doctrine, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning, 
It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Wow. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. I don't know if you've ever had a dog, but that is a true statement right there. <laughs> we've, we've had dogs uh, a lot in our life. I'm going to tell you what, we had beagles and beagle mixes a lot in our life. And it, those, those beagles would return to whatever came out of their body and, and, and happily eat it up. And it's a picture, right, of, of humans when we've been freed from that way of life through the, the grace of God and the truth of the gospel. And yet we want to return to the depravity. We want to return to the falseness. And to me, it's a sad commentary on life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think in reference to, uh, to Peter's characterization of these false teachers, that where they have, in essence, acknowledged the truth of Christ, and, and the, the way I read that is it's uh, you know, a temporary acknowledgement, maybe even a false acknowledgement for their own selfish benefit, uh, but eventually they're going to be revealed for who they are. And so they, as Peter so uh, wonderfully uh, describes it, they are dogs who have returned to their own vomit or pigs that have, you know, wandered back uh, to the mud. Um, And they've, again, by their actions, by the depravity of their actions, by the falsehood of what they are preaching and proclaiming, they are revealing to the world who they actually are. And Peter's using this, this uh, vivid language as a means to caution those who encounter these folks to say, look, look at them. You will know them by the words they speak. You will know them by the actions of their lives. You're going to see the falsehood that is embedded in them have nothing to do with them. Yeah, good word, good word. I wish we had time to, to dive even deeper into the book of Second Peter. We won't have time to go into chapter three, which is all about the return of Christ. So it, for the reader, uh, listener today, just go ahead and read it. I mean, read, read scripture and see what it says to you. And that's more important than anything, really, you, you reading scripture. If you're choosing between reading scripture and listening to our podcast, read scripture. Read, read scripture and see what the Lord is saying, what he has to say to you. And, and look at chapter three, what he talks about the return of Christ. It is a really good thing. Well, that, that wraps it up for today. And next week, we're going to return to the narrative in the book of Acts. We'll look at Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're going to look at this, uh, explore that how the church was putting down deeper roots in Jerusalem and what they were doing and what was happening around them as they were, as they were doing so. Folks, if you want to stay up to date with the Beyond Mission podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to jump in deeper to this year-long teaching, this Beyond Mission teaching we're doing, uh, find our website or our app and click on the Beyond Mission link, and it will take you to more elements in this study. Until next week, may God bless all of you.